New York Sports Talk Radio 1011 WBRP The Burp. This is Big Mike and the Worm. Call number one. You want to talk about the Gambinos lost last night? These dumb motherfuckers. Call, I got to stop you there. We are on the radio, so some people can't hear you very well. Can you please speak louder? Game Tree was a fucking disgrace, and those rednecks, they was throwing meatballs, and our boys, especially Mr. fucking Colleen, couldn't get the ball out of the fucking infield. Yeah, 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 I watched the game call. You think I ain't got eyes, you dumb motherfucker? But yeah, our boys had a rough one, and now we're down 2-1. But we ain't out of it yet. We got Judge Gideon on the hill. I ain't worried. Next caller. Yeah, can I get a Peking duck in order of the Chinese green beans? And do you guys do miso soup? I don't know why our call-in number is 212 Chinese, but we got to change that. Caller, you want 213 Chinese. Call number three, you're on the air. I'm, I'm nervous, Big Mike. I'm, I'm looking at the lineup, and they say they got the pickers. They got some guy named David Isaacs pitching tonight, and he's the only guy they didn't use last night. I mean, is he some sort of seeker or weapon? Yeah, it's very spooky. I ain't never heard of this guy. I mean, who is David Isaacs? Who is David Isaacs? That's the question me and Will set out to answer. And what we found was very little. Gary Ludlow was born in Langley, Virginia on August 11th, 1948 to a military family. He went to Harvard before doing graduate work studying Swahili in occupied Berlin. Officially, Gary Ludlow died in a warehouse fire in Langley on November 1st, 1963. David Isaacs first appears three years later on the Baltimore Orioles draft list in the 31st round. No school or age is listed, just Langley. Will, here's a picture from that draft. There are a lot of Orioles management in this picture, but do you see the guy in the back there? Is that Henry Kissinger? Sure looks like it. Guy was everywhere. Here's a picture of Gary Ludlow. Who does that remind you of? That just reminds me of David Isaacs with a slightly bigger nose. Interesting. Two days after we went to the Langley Courthouse to look at public records, I received this phone call from an unregistered number. Hello? Nathaniel Fisher. That's me. Stop looking into Gary Ludlow. You've been warned. That was the first of many strange occurrences that began once we started our research. Strange phone calls, dark cars following us to the bodega. I kept seeing red dots appearing on my walls. We tried to figure out what it meant, then realized it was probably nothing. Anyway, David Isaacs. David Isaacs' pitching career, much like he himself, was totally unremarkable. He would usually only pitch in crazy circumstances like if the whole team got food poisoning. One thing that did stand out to us was when and where he pitched. His only appearance in the minors was when he was sent down to play against the Cardinals' double-A affiliate, the Memphis Redbirds, for one game. That game, April 4th, 1968. He pitched one inning and was immediately called back up to the majors. If that date sounds familiar, it should, because that's the day Martin Luther King Jr. was shot in Memphis, Tennessee. Two months later, he was a last-minute scratch from a scheduled start due to diarrhea in a game against the Los Angeles Dodgers. That game took place on June 6, 1968, the night Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. On June 7, 1972, the Pickers went to play a series in Baltimore, and Isaacs pitched one inning. 
But the team didn't stay in Baltimore. They stayed an hour away in Washington, D.C. at the Watergate Hotel. We tried to talk to several of Isaac's former teammates about the mysterious reliever, but over and over we got the same response. I do not remember this man. It's almost as if David Isaacs was the most forgettable man on the planet, completely unremarkable in every single way, almost as if by design. We asked then Redbirds manager, Charlie Horse, if he remembered Isaacs or the game the night of April 4th. I remember David Isaacs pitching one solid inning and that was it. As for why the squad, despite being based out of Memphis, decided to check into the Lorraine Motel that fateful day, I can tell you that it was for a team-building sleepover, and that's it. We made popcorn and sat around in our jammies and did each other's hair. And David Isaacs was with me the whole time. One teammate did remember Isaacs, and that is Pickers left fielder Sam Dandwich who actually played on the 1968 Orioles before eventually finding a home in Nashville. Yeah, I used to have cigarettes with Davey sometimes. I knew things about him that nobody else on the team knew, like that he was from Virginia and that he liked to go to the movies. I knew the most about him of anyone in baseball. Sam, do you remember any of his pitching performances from 1968? Well, only the one that he didn't pitch. We were there in Los Angeles outside the Anaheim Stadium, and he said to me, I can't pitch today, Sammy. I have diarrhea. I have to go 45 minutes back to where we were staying, the Ambassador Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. And then he got into an all-black car with no license plate that was already waiting for him. Two hours later, Jack Kennedy's brother was killed at the Ambassador Hotel, and we won 2 nothing. Interesting. Do you remember anything strange he ever said or did? Nope. Only one time we were down in spring training in Nicaragua. This was in the late 70s. I went to grab my bat bag for batting practice, and I grabbed his bag by mistake. When I got to the plate and opened up the bag, it was full of AK-47s. And so I asked Davey, why you got guns in your bat bag, brother? And Davey looked at me and he said, Sammy, I like you. You're my only friend. You could never tell anyone what you just saw. Please, believe me, I don't want anything bad to happen to you. Anyway, later I saw him give that bag to some guys he called the Contras. And they seemed nice. I'm sure it was just a luggage mix-up at the airport or something. Was David Isaacs a CIA operative in Major League Baseball? It's hard to say. Literally, it's hard to say. We can't say it. But with 20 professional innings across 11 seasons in baseball and a career ERA of 11.64, he found himself on the bump for Game 4. Cedric Entertainer had this to say before the game. Hey, Cedric, how do you feel about your chances tonight? Well, the series is even, and we think we have a really good shot at winning Game 5. Cedric, this is Game 4. Yep, uh uh-huh. Cedric, David Isaacs has only been with the team for the playoffs this season. Do you know whether he was injured or in the minors for most of 79? He was playing in the minors. A source says he flew back from Iran in September. The minors in Iran. David Isaacs got absolutely smoked. He gave up nine runs through three innings. Not that you'd know it from looking at his cold, emotionless face. There were no mound visits, no notes from Cedric Entertainer. He just went up there and got steamrolled. 
Gambino's right fielder, Sleepy Goodnight, finally woke up. After a dreadful start to the series, he hit a three-run home run into a nearby building. A two-on for Sleepy Goodnight. I tell you, if this guy in the pickets is a professional pitcher, then so am I. His curveball is flatter than my ex-wife's tits. Here's the pitch, and... Shit! There's a fucking moonshot that's gonna hit some banker in his shiny head. I hope it's the scumbag who cut in front of me at McGlinchey's bar to order a Heineken. How about an American beer, you bowtie motherfucker? I had to shove that bottle up your ass. Prick. 2-0 Gambinos. And two innings later, with the bases loaded, he did it again. Well, after three walks in a row, Isaacs has got to throw a strike. Here's one the good night and ouchy mama grand slam into the building smash goes a glass. I hope it's the yuppie trash that is dating my ex-wife. You hear me, Michael Bosworth, you fucking dead man. I am going to kill you. I know you see me standing outside your house. One of these nights I'm going to kick your front door in and beat you to death with a hammer. With his only pitcher getting shelled and no fresh arms in the bullpen, Cedric Entertainer was forced to start using bench players, including two scoreless innings from Ken Burns. That Ken Burns. Yeah, that's right. Ken Burns. Who knew? After accumulating a massive lead early, the Gambinos cruised to a much-needed win. A couple pickers relievers took some painkillers and went out there for a few quiet innings, but then came the eighth inning. Enter Ben Laden. Ben Laden had the whole city of New York buzzing. He was my favorite player growing up. He wasn't as beloved across America as Mr. Clean, but you ask anybody in New York about Ben Laden, and they knew he got results. Guy could smack him. With Felix Navidad on the mound, Ben Laden hit the longest home run in the history of Marlboro Camel Stadium. People want to say it went 650 feet, but there's no way to ever know. A miracle on the Hudson River as the lower Manhattan Gambino's third baseman Ben Laden hits a home run so far out of the field that it actually hit a passenger plane. The plane was forced to land in the Hudson River, saving the lives of everyone on board, and an event that many are describing as once in a lifetime. I was on the other side of the river when Ben Laden hit that homer. We ran outside to watch the plane go down, and people were going nuts. It was crazy. They were on the other side of the river dancing. A true New Yorker moment. It didn't really affect the game. It was 10-0. But the scene at Marlboro Camel was like no other. It was almost religious. Everyone was in awe of the hit and of the plane hitting the river. Immediately, the Chinese fans and the Wall Street fans met in the concourse and hugged it out. They called for a truce and started having a massive cocaine and fireworks party. John Drama had sex on the broadcast. And it's the ninth inning, and who? Fuck yeah, that's, that's good. That's wow, wow. We two zero count on Gilmore Deeds, one out. I think everybody just. Mm, mm, I think everybody just. Uh, everybody just. Boy, they want to get out of here. Hey, Timmy. What do you want, John? I want you to watch this. Quit watching the game. Look at me, Timmy. Look at what I'm doing on the desk you sometimes use. The city was ablaze with excitement, and the party continued after the game. Here's Ricky the Weasel. Oh, man, that was one hell of a night. After the game, I went down to the locker room, and I said, fellas, we are going to party tonight. 
and I noticed that all the players was looking all sad. And I said, fellas, what's the deal? You just tied the series. And then I realized that they was all wearing Pickers jerseys. And I said, what is this, a costume party? Why didn't anyone tell me? Why don't you tell me nothing? And then I was informed that I was in the Pickers locker room. The Gambinos players left immediately after the last strike. They all struck out on purpose in the ninth. And without even showering, they all sprinted to the team bus to head to the place anyone would want to be at in 1979 New York. The SNL After Party. You know, Will, a lot of people say that comedians are like modern-day philosophers. Hey, listener, have you ever felt like a philosopher? Or at least been the funniest guy in your office? Today's sponsor of A Closer Look is Will and Nate's Stand-Up Comedy Classes. An eight-week crash course over Zoom that will make you a master at performing in front of large audiences. Will and I aren't only journalists, we're also stand-up comedians with a combined four years of experience. And we would like to help you take the first step on your journey to a Netflix special, and then a role in a Marvel movie that requires you to do steroids. We'll equip you with important tools such as stage presence, joke writing, and how to own hecklers. You'll be able to learn from both of our different comedy styles. Congress finally sent $1,400 checks to hardworking Americans. Asked why it took two months to deliver them, the Democrats replied, they were delivered on Postmates. Man, I miss going to the club. Are you ever in the club and you see an ugly girl throwing it back? Look at him, he's laughing. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. I know your girl does. You know what you gotta say to that ugly girl at the club? You gotta say, girl, get your stinky ass out of here. At the end of the course, you'll be able to perform with Will and Nate at McDoodle's Bar and Grill in White Plains, New York. You can bring your friends and family. No, you have to bring your friends and family. They should wanna come. If they love you, they'll come. And if they don't, you don't get to perform. The fellas over at SNL had just finished up a show with Barbara Streisand as the guest. So naturally, we was all chomping to get a gander at her, especially Carmine. Carmine was the biggest fan. He was enthralled with her. We walked in there with 25 pounds of cocaine. Chevy Chase said to me, hey, thanks, but did you bring some cocaine for everybody else? <laughs> what a guy, Chevy Chase, he loved cocaine. We don't have a lot of reliable accounts for what happened next. We have Ricky the Weasel's interviews with the feds and some anecdotes from people who were there. We'll try to stitch this together as best we can. Apart from Ricky the Weasel, who was unconscious for most of the party, we only have two sources. The first is a great account given to BBC Radio by Gambino's first baseman and the only Englishman to ever play in Major League Baseball, Barnsley Thug. It's very splendid to have you on with us. Could you introduce yourself to the listeners at home? My name's Bonesley Thug. I play baseball my whole life. And what drew you to the very American sport of baseball? I played any sport with a device that you could hit people with. Baseball, cricket, snooker. I even hit people with a tennis racket. I was very skilled at all of them. The second source came from the musical guest of SNL that night, who was, of course, Groovy World. 
Yeah, brother, I had a lot of cool nights, had a lot of fun, saw a lot of things. But man, I tell you what, best night I ever had was partying up in the Big Apple, or as I like to call it, the Candy Apple, seeing as it's so delicious. But man, that night, me and the band, the Gambinos, and that tasty crew of SNL, we cut a rug. We cut a rug up real good. The night started on the set at 30 Rock. We went to where they did the comedy night, and they was pissed. They must have had 15 lagers each by the time we arrived. Some lady came up and gave me a kiss right on lips. Didn't even know her name. I've been drinking since I was five, but I've never seen no one drink as much as those lads did that night. Nobody was happier about the Gambino's win than Mr. Clean, who, due to his medical regimen, said that he was always thirsty. Multiple witnesses said that he drank a six-pack the way Stone Cold Steve Austin would. My man, Mr. Clean, was out of sights. He was drinking those schlitzes like there was ambrosia. First punch of the night was, uh, Ben Laden. He punched a groovy world guy in the stomach. Guess the groovy world guy tried to lick his ear. Whole room clapped. Octopus, my soulmate, he was, uh, well, he was partaken instead of par-given. And he whispered to me, I tell you, money, that boy over there who hit the plane out the sky, he looking like a creamsicle, and I gotta get me a lick. The party continued over to famous New York place Elaine's Bar, where the cocaine and drinking was ramped up to a hundred. Everyone was clamoring for the ear of Barbara Streisand. None harder than the head of the Gambino crime family himself, Carmine Gambino. Carmine sat in his booth with Barbara for hours, talking about how he wanted to build an opera house so that Barbara could stand on that stage all day and all night singing opera. Meanwhile, the Gambino players were in the midst of a cocaine-doing contest with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Bill Murray was at the bar serving drinks. Oh, he was serving drinks, huh? That's so random. You know, I don't want to sidetrack this. Go ahead. I would never want to be like Bill Murray and make this about me and take attention away from, you know, the thing that's actually happening and turn it into a self-serving, quote unquote, act of kindness that is actually a thinly veiled. Look at me. Aren't I the protagonist of reality? I who honestly decided to give Bill Murray all of this space in the forefront of our lives. I mean, like, why is he constantly being rewarded for just hanging around? Not even hanging around, intentionally throwing himself in front of a camera. Oh, Bill Murray showed up at your wedding randomly for no reason. No, he showed up because he knew you were going to take a picture with your disposable camera and post it on fucking Reddit and be like, oh, look at this. What a normal guy. Uh, We really have to get back to the story. But like, who, okay, who decided Bill Murray's a good actor, right? Like, is he actually one? Like, he did a stupid guy voice in Caddyshack, and that's it. Oh, he's good at what? He's good at being smarmy? He even do, like, a British accent? Like, what the hell can he, like, Robin Williams, like, you know, I'm not a fan of Robin Williams or anything, but Robin Williams has a better CV than fucking Bill Murray does. Like, Robin Williams at least has some fucking good roles. Like, what the hell has Bill Murray even been in? Some stupid fucking Jim Jarmusch movie? Wes Anderson movie? Oh, he did. rolls his eyes. Yeah, yeah, he rolls, he does, he does smug, like, yeah, like, like, quiet voice. That's it. It's all he does is, like, a little quiet, like, hmm, well, that's kind of thing. I was like, but anybody could fucking do that. Fucking Jim from The Office. 
could do what Bill Murray did. We're giving Bill Murray a fucking place in the cultural pantheon for being Jim from the office 15 years too soon. He just, I, I, I can't, if I have to watch another movie where after I see it, somebody talks about, Oh, you, I never expected to see Bill Murray pop up halfway. I'm going to, I'm just going to lose it. I swear. Honestly, like, like we all hate Chevy chase apparently for no reason. And then Bill Murray walks around like, Oh, Bill Murray is somehow less of a dick than Chevy chase. If I had to hang out with Bill Murray for eight hours a day, I would have turned into a psycho asshole like Chevy chase did. I would have done some very, very, um, I don't know what to say. Like, let's say like mass shooting type things. There were many punches thrown already that night, but when did it get bad? I suppose an amount of that culpability falls to me. But there was a lot of fighting after Groovy World started a concert. Groovy World snuck onto the stage at Elaine's forcing Woody Allen's clarinet band off and commandeering the instruments. Money McDonald's opened up the set with a four-minute monologue about how violence as an act and concept is evil, which had the opposite of its intended effect on the drunken, coked-out audience. John Belushi tried to throw a bottle at the band, but he missed and hit Gambino's Game 4 starter, Judge Gideon, who had just pitched seven solid innings earlier in the night. The Gambinos rushed to the defense of their pitcher and dragged Bill Murray out from behind the bar and threw him out of a plate glass window. The brawl continued for several minutes before Groovy World calmed everyone down by playing their melodic hit song, Love is My Best Friend. I remember Chevy Chase and John Belushi telling us that they were sorry for Bill Murray throwing that bottle and that Bill kind of does his own thing. And then Chevy said... Well, don't you hit me as hard as you can one more time. And I said, you don't really want that. And Chevy said, brother, I really do. And so I did. Busted his nose up real good. And he went to the bathroom to clean up. Groovy World played as Carmine and Barbara Streisand did a slow dance on top of the bar. Oh, I remember. I sang my most precious song. Fa-la-la, love is my best friend, he can be yours too. He's free to meet up at any time, you just have to ask. He doesn't care how many beers of his you drink. You just get him one if you guys go out later. While Carmine danced, his wife was in the bathroom committing an act that would tear the team apart. Chevy Chase came out of the bathroom and he said he saw something peculiar. He said, also your bald fellow in flagrante delicto with Isabella Gambino. And I said, bollocks. But it was not bollocks. It was not bollocks at all. By the end of Love is My Best Friend, word had spread throughout the party. Next time on A Closer Look.